If you would stand with me, Luke chapter 5, and I'll read in verse 27 uh, to 39. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are here with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that when we were saved and born again, you made us new creations in Christ. We thank you for the union that we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you that when we came to Christ, you declared us holy and blameless, adopted sons and daughters of God. Lord, as we study your word this morning, I ask that your anointing would flow through me. Open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to be receptive, change us by your word and by your spirit. Renew our minds. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would turn your, uh, this, your outline over for a moment just to uh, see these questions on the back that you could talk with, um, with your spouse or your family this afternoon. Jesus' life showed he loved sinners and wanted to help them. Does your attitude towards sinners reflect a heart of love or judgment? Number two, how are we like Pharisees, giving an outward appearance of godliness, but lacking love and compassion for others? And on the front there, if you'd turn back to the front, um, we want to set this account in the context of what happened just before this. And in chapter 5, verse 24, uh, it says this. 
but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So throughout this gospel account, we're going to see Jesus doing miracles. People that have leprosy get well. Uh, uh, diseases are healed. Demons are cast out of people. Jesus stills the storm, demonstrating his power and his authority as God in the flesh. Okay? But we also couple that with the fact and the issue and the bottom line issue is the issue of forgiveness of sins. Okay? So Jesus comes seeking and saving those that are lost, and we were lost in our sins before we came to Christ. The ultimate issue is forgiveness of sins, and that is guaranteed. The moment you confess your sins, as 1 John tells us, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, that's the heart, that's salvation, that's a, a clean conscience because of the cross, okay? In Sunday school, Tim and Buzz are studying the book of Hebrews, and the whole book is about comparing the old covenant to the new. The old covenant, you followed God's laws, uh, uh, lambs were sacrificed, blood was shed, okay? But it was all an outward uh, demonstration, okay, uh, that, you could, that didn't change the heart, Jesus comes in the New Testament, washes away our sins once and for all, as Mike said in communion, and we receive that by faith, okay? So it's a beautiful uh, thing that we have in Christ in the new covenant. Now, in this section here in verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, the same account is in Matthew chapter 9. Okay, so Bible commentators know, and it's clear that this is the same account of a tax collector being called to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, and his name is Matthew. Okay, in this account it says Levi, but many times if a change, a climactic change or a huge change happens in somebody's life, especially being called, okay, their name was changed. So his name is changed from Levi to Matthew, and you can read about that where Matthew is used in Matthew chapter 9. If you look at your outline there, if you would put the word hated, okay, tax collectors were hated. I think we understand that, okay, if we just a superficial reading of the New Testament, uh, tax collectors were hated, okay, and tax collectors, the next blank, were considered traitors working for the Romans, okay? So Matthew has a lucrative profession, okay? He's going to draw a good income the rest of his life. He's going to be financially well off, okay? He's going to have no friends. But if you've got money in your pocket, who cares if you have no friends? Not really, but uh, that was going to be his situation for the rest of his life. I find his response very interesting. Jesus looks at him and says two words, follow me. Now, we don't know what the look on Jesus' face was. We don't know his tone of voice. Uh, we don't know anything about it except those two uh, words. But I love this immediate reaction, immediate response from Matthew. Three things. He got up, he left everything, and he followed him. Whatever happened in that moment... I don't doubt the power of the Holy Spirit was flowing through Jesus and hit Matthew. And whatever he thought, whatever he did, he got up, he left everything and followed him. Okay? So Matthew 
no doubt being an accountant, good with numbers, well aware of risks and rewards, okay, with a number type person, okay, for some reason thought, whatever he's got, it's better than what I have here. He got up, he followed Jesus, okay, and he obeyed. And I love that response. Now, what do we have next, okay, in verse 29, okay? Then Levi, or Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. If something is good, no doubt you're going to want to share it with your friends, okay? Unfortunately, in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin and whatnot, this company, okay, that Matthew invites is not very acceptable, they don't know the law. They're not righteous, okay? They uh, don't know all the things that Moses prescribed. And so they immediately uh, look on this with scorn and see what it says. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want to just take a moment. It's a little bit of a history lesson. It's not on your outline, but I think it's helpful. I found one article that talked about uh, these scribes, these Pharisees, uh, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, and all these people, and it's a continual wave of opposition that Jesus runs into. Now, we don't find these people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the priests, we have the high priests that are uh, called for in the book of Leviticus. But what happens, if I can give you just a quick uh, 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 history lesson, there's about a 400-year break between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? And what happened is in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed, okay? God, because of Israel's disobedience, allowed the Babylonians to come in, okay? And uh, the temple was destroyed. Many were taken off to Babylon, okay? And so Israel is now in Babylon wondering, we thought we were God's chosen people. What happened, okay? Now, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that God moved on Cyrus and moved on Nebuchadnezzar. They were allowed to come back and they were able to rebuild. But we have these groups of people that are looking at God's law and they're saying, wow, where did we go wrong? What happened? And they start just absorbing the Torah. When I say Torah, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they say, we have had a national disaster. Our temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is ransacked. We're in a pagan country. What happened? And they start throwing themselves full force into studying the Torah and saying, this must never happen again. And that mindset went out through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, okay? So let me just give you these groups. Scribes, okay? They copied the scriptures. They copied the letter of the law, the smallest details, okay? And those copyists of the Torah actually became teachers, and they started uh, teaching. This is what the Torah says. Remember, we can't drift away. We don't want it to happen again. We don't want to be overtaken by the Babylonians and whatever again. And they just with full force said, we've got to teach people God's law. A good thing, right? Okay. The next one there is the Sanhedrin. Now, we remember that we're in Lent and Jesus, when he goes to trial, stands before the Sanhedrin. Okay, and this is a group of 70 Jewish men directly under the high priest, and they acted like a Supreme Court. Okay, 
uh, legal and religious disputes came to them, okay? Now we have the Pharisees. They refused to bow down to Antiochus Epiphanes way back in the Old Testament. They said, no, there's only one God. We won't bow down to you. And out of that revolt and that refusal, group, uh, this group uh, came in to be called the Pharisees, okay? And the last one is the Sadducees. Many in many ways, they're like the Pharisees, but they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, why do I take the moment to give you that little history lesson? We don't see all these groups in the Old Testament, but they came to be because Israel went into captivity and they said, we've got to study God's laws. We've got to communicate it to the Hebrews and the Jews so that they know, so that never happens again. That's good. But what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene? They're so stuck on every literal detail that they forgot that a Messiah was coming. And a Messiah came that did not meet their expectations. So everywhere Jesus turns, he runs into opposition from these uh, scribes, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and they miss the Messiah, okay? Because he does not fit their expectations, okay? So what happens here? We've got Matthew who's following Jesus, and look on your outline, the third blank, the fourth blank, Okay, uh, the second one is Matthew followed Jesus and held a banquet to honor him. Okay, the next one, sinners and tax collectors were at the banquet. Okay, and the last one, the Pharisees believed themselves to be righteous. Now, what do we need to understand about this? Keep your finger in, in Luke chapter 5 and go to Matthew 23 for just a second. Jesus runs into opposition from these people all throughout his ministry, okay? And look what it says here in Matthew chapter 23. Please follow along, starting in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell. Can you imagine saying that? You're making them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Jesus is really scoring some points with these people. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Verse 20, therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything in it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and honor those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Talk about a scathing rebuke. What is the point? The point is these people believed if we follow God's law, we are righteous and we won't be sinners. They completely misunderstood or didn't see it yet that this new covenant was going to come, that Jesus was going to die. Isaiah 53 described that, okay? And knowing him, he pays the price. And then the spirit of God comes in and we are changed from the inside out. Righteousness is not an outward following the rules, doing everything right. It's saying, Jesus, forgive me my sins, come into my heart. Take my heart and change me from the inside out. Okay? So Jesus blisters the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, okay? They meant well. We've got to teach the law. We've got to tell people what God's law says. But they didn't understand that Jesus was coming to change the heart. It's the difference between a fake apology and a real apology. Somebody ever apologized to you and you just get the feeling they didn't mean it? If you've been married any time at all, you've given your wife an apology and was just kind of like, I'm sorry, honey. But there's not real change inside. Friends, we need the Spirit of God to come in and change us on the inside. And that's what true repentance is. That's why we're taking extra time during this season of Lent to say a confession together. 
Don't ever grow so staid and stiff in your walk with God that you can't confess sin. Because if you do, you know what's going to happen? You're going to suffer from a false perception of yourselves. Okay? And this is rampant all throughout the human race. I'm a pretty good guy. Look at me. Look how nice. I call it the cult of the nice guy. Oh, he's such a nice person. Look how nice he is. Look how nice that person is, that, that lady. Oh, she's so nice. Friends, it's all an outward show unless there's true repentance inside and a person's been born again. There's no change in their life. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, uh, 23. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a sin problem in our hearts. When we're born again and saved, we are considered righteous and clean and holy and blameless because of what Jesus has done. We have a status in Christ that will never change. Do we still need to confess sin? Yes, because we do stupid things. And we have to take responsibility for those things and say, yes, I was wrong. Yes, I blew it. But it doesn't change our status in Christ as believers. And the Pharisees did not understand this. So then he looked at this group of people and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I love Jesus' response. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You ever make an appointment at the Scott Valley Rural Health Clinic, okay? And you get your appointment and you pull in on the day and the time and you go and you sit in the waiting room and they call your name and you go in the back and they close the door and you sit there waiting for the doctor to come in. And he comes in and he says, how you doing today? And you say, I'm fine. And he says, well, what symptoms are you having? I don't have any symptoms. I feel fine. Well, at that point, the doctor's looking and say, well, what are you doing here then? No, when you walk into the doctor's office, it's because you got a problem. You don't feel good. You're sick. There's an infection. You're vomiting or whatever you're doing. Okay? Sick people go to see a doctor. Friends, we are sick with our sin. We just are. I've told you about Carl Menninger writing a book many years ago in the 60s. I don't know that he was a believer, but he was a psychiatrist and a perceptive one at that. And he said this, whatever became of sin? Because there grew a time in the 50s and 60s in America and really around the world where he said, you know, I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty nice person. A book even came out and it was called, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm okay. Aren't you okay? And when it's completely coming against the scripture that says we're not okay, we are lost, we are separated from God, we're on our way to hell. And because of our sinful heart, with no amount of effort that will change, okay, as Mike said in communion, we did nothing to be saved. Absolutely nothing. Just the Spirit of God brought us to a place where we saw No, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. And many of us threw ourselves at his feet and said, Jesus, 
Forgive me of my sins, come into my heart. And then the new birth happened at that point. The Spirit of God came in. We became a new creation in Christ. And it's the miracle of salvation. So you go to a doctor because you're sick. Unfortunately, these Pharisees had a problem with their self-perception. And they said, we're not sinners. We follow the law. We're doing good. We have God's favor, okay? So they missed what Jesus was going to do. What does it say in verse 33? Okay, and they continue in their self-deception and their self-deluded self-righteousness. Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so are the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Okay, in the Old Testament law, fasting was only commanded one day a year on the Day of Atonement. We'll see different references throughout the New Testament about it, often considered a, an important spiritual practice, and it is, okay? So, but they're complaining and they're mad, and Jesus is now coming to them and responding with three different illustrations. Number one, Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? So Jesus is taking an illustration from a Hebrew wedding, which is a seven-day event, a time of feasting and celebration and hilarity and just a high point in the Jewish culture as a young bride and a groom would come together and be married, okay? So it says this, verse 35, but the time will come when the bride will be taken from them. Look at your outline there under weddings. Weddings were for celebrating and feasting, not for fasting, okay? And Jesus at the end of that verse says this, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. That phrase there will be taken from them is pointing to Jesus' own death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven. He looks at these Pharisees and says, look, I'm here now. This is a time for celebration. The time's gonna come when you can fast but it's not right now. Now the backdrop of this metaphor is this. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and he calls the church his bride. And if you look in Revelation, Revelation 19, 20, 21, there's references about the wedding supper of the lamb, about the bridegroom, okay, uh, and all these things. And it's a beautiful metaphor. And you could take it to the book of Song of Solomon with this it's intimate picture of the love of a bride for a groom and the love of a groom for a bride, okay? You could take it on an individual level, okay, and say, Jesus, I love you and you love me. It's a powerful picture. I've used it in my own devotions at times and just saw this just powerful picture of the endless, passionate love of Jesus for you. Do you know that Jesus loves you? I find many Christians are still stuck in the past and their mistakes and their flaws and what they've done wrong and they're living in shame and condemnation. And you need to know that's not the way God feels about you. We make self-assessments about our behavior, our past, our mistakes, and we get stuck there and Satan just has a field day with that. Why? He's the accuser of the brethren. Ephesians chapter 1 says we are holy and blameless as adopted sons. 
You are holy in God's eyes because of what Jesus did on the cross. You are blameless in God's eyes because of what Jesus did on the cross. You've been an adopted son or a daughter of God because of what he's done. Did we earn that? No. Do we always live like that? No. But it doesn't change who you are. Okay? Your birth certificate has your name on it. Did you always live in your life in a way that made your parents happy? No. Does it change who you are? No. You've got to know this, and I'm not mitigating confession of sin or whatever the case may be, but you confess sin and you do it not because, oh, I think I lost my salvation, I'm going to hell. You did it because you want to walk in fellowship, abiding with the Savior. Thank you, Jesus, that you forgive sins. And I'm going to come back after this mistake to this place when you, but he's never looking down and saying, well, you just blew it and I think you just took it too far this time. That's not salvation. That's not what Jesus died for. Okay, and this is ours in Christ. Weddings were for celebrating and feasting, not for fasting. Jesus points to his departure by those words will be taken uh, from them. Now let's go on to verse 36 and see this other illustration. Remember, he's still responding to these critical Pharisees, and he says in verse 36, Jesus told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Okay? Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will uh, not match the old. Okay? So we have an illustration here from clothing and sewing and holes on garments. We have a new garment, okay? And we have an old garment. If you take a piece from this uh, new garment and put it on the old, it's not going to match. It's not going to look right. What is happening? Look at your outline there. A new garment is not used to repair an old garment. Okay, it just doesn't work. Okay? The old garments are a symbol for the Old Testament law and the sacrifices. Okay? Jesus is coming, bringing the new covenant, this new economy between God and human beings. That Jesus would die once, that we would see that gift of grace by faith. Okay? That's the way things were going to work. All this stuff that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had built their own lives on okay, was no longer going to be how he was going to work. And that's why they hated Jesus till the very end, till they had him killed. The next blank, new garments are a symbol for the new covenant, okay? The last verse there, look at the last section, look at verse 37. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Quick historical background on, on, on grapes and winemaking. At the time, grapes would be harvested, and when they were harvested, they were usually laid on the ground in the sun for four or five, six days, and that would increase the sugar content in the grapes, okay? Then at that point, they would often be put in a vat, usually a stone one, and people would walk on it barefooted and smash the grapes. 
and the, 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 the grape juice would, would come out the side and into containers, okay? And the containers, often wineskins, sometimes stone, uh, uh, vats and whatnot, uh, uh, that wine would begin this fermentation process. There was a first fermentation, then they went into the wineskins, and then there was a second fermentation, and it was a natural, organic process that would happen in fermentation, okay? And people were familiar with that. And you would not put wine into an old wineskin, an old dry leather thing, because it would crack, and as that fermentation process would happen, okay, it would expand and it would crack that, and that would be a waste of the wine. A simple illustration that comes up often in the New Testament, and it's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? And what happens there, look at your outline, new, new wine would be wasted in old wineskins due to fermentation. The new wine is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the bottom line here that the Pharisees did not understand, the old structures of the Hebrew faith could not contain the organic and life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. Look back at your text there and see what it says. Verse 38, new, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Okay? Let me make a point of application just in conclusion here. In 1975, a man named Howard Snyder wrote a book called The Problem of Wineskins. And he described in this, uh, using this verse here, structures of church, okay, and what we're used to. When I say the word church, okay, all kinds of things come to your mind. Probably what you grew up with, uh, you know, uh, hymns, uh, sermons, uh, songs, uh, church potlucks. I mean, you say church, and all kinds of pictures come to your mind. Well, Howard Snyder came to this conclusion, and I think it was a good one, and it's provoked a lot of discussion ever since, is that do the structures of church as we know it limit the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay? Now, what organizations around the globe <coughs> excuse me, are communicating the gospel? When I thought of this, I thought, well, you know, it used to be called Campus Crusade, and I think it's called Crew now, okay? Cain, uh, uh, what organization are you going with? YWAM. YWAM, okay? You have Gideons, they distribute Bibles all over the place. There's all kinds of organizations, <coughs> excuse me, that are communicating the gospel and their structure is different than a Sunday morning building where we gather and have a pastor and, and do communion once a month or whatever. The point is this. Structures can change, but you can still communicate the gospel. When I first became a pastor in 1988, I realized that the structures of the church that I were in needed to change. And we took out King James Bibles and put in NIVs. <coughs> we tried to upbeat the music a little bit, okay, just to bring some kids to church. We tried different things, and some people were very upset about that. And I realized that you could change the structures of church and still communicate Christ crucified. The Pharisees didn't understand that. They still wanted to teach the law. They still wanted to go back to sacrifices. They still wanted the economy, if you will, between God and people to be the way that it had always been. Okay? 
So what do we do? And I think the elders and I, we talk about this from time to time. We're even looking at some of our bylaws right now <coughs> and saying, what here do we need to keep a clear structure and to be functional and so everybody understands what we're doing, but we don't want to go overboard and have too much because the life of the Spirit, okay, is crucial. People hear the Word of God, they move in the Spirit, they change, okay, and really what happens with the Spirit is you have organic life change. And if you get too stuck on a structure, because that makes you feel comfortable and feel safe, but miss what the Spirit of God is doing, okay, in my opinion, that's a mistake. And this is what Jesus was dealing with here, this problem of uh, wineskins. <coughs> Worship team, can you come? Father, we thank you for the new wine of your spirit. Lord, I ask that your spirit would flow and work in our lives. Pray that the structures that sometimes we're comfortable with would uh, not restrict that. Yes, we need structure. Yes, we need organization. But I pray that we would always balance that with the life of your spirit that we need. Flowing, working, changing. We pray that you would work and flow in our church and in our lives. Thank you, God. You are good. And all that you do is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>